Tonight I want to talk about my, uh, the story of my favorite character in the Bible, the one that I resonate with the most. If you want to know what the inside world of me is, um, you'll get a pretty good picture of it tonight as we study Gideon. Uh, I've given you some pictures of my own identity and sort of the formation of my identity through some very painful things when I was a kid uh, in high school and then into my college years and what led me to Christ. Uh, and I want to pick up uh, about nine months after I became a Christian. I was starting my senior year. I'd been a pre-med student for three years, but I hated science. <laughs> and I finally realized that I would never get away from science being a doctor. It took me three years to, you know, not the, not the fastest piece of toast to, or to come out of the toaster. Um, but I loved history. And, and I thought, I want to major in history. Well, and pray, as my first prayer as a new Christian was, well, God, what do you want me to do? Because I was so confused about this. And so um, after my junior year, I really thought I was supposed to major in history. But I, but I had one problem. That is, I'd only had one course in history in three years of college. Western Civ Part 1 was it. But I had been a history guy all my life, loved history. And so I started off. And I, my plan was to finish and get a PhD in history and teach on the college campus. I thought I would love to be in the college environment. I would love to be able to talk about history. And I was just starting to, I'd just taken a speech class in the summer. And for the first time, I thought, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do, something related to speaking. Even though I was terrified by it, there was something that I had people tell me, well, yeah, you, you, you do good at this. That was really clear. So... Nine months, I'm, I've been a Christian nine months, and I'm sitting at, on my senior year in church, and we have a, um, uh, at the Baptist church where I started going, um, we had a Scottish uh, preacher with a heavy Scottish brogue, and uh, he would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. And all these students, this was at Baylor, so there were a lot of college kids that grew up in Baptist churches, and they knew to turn over to about here, and they'd be pretty close. Now me, I turned back to page VII, which was the table of contents in my Bible, to find out just where Jeremiah was. Um, and after I, about, about a month into my senior year, I was at church, and, and sitting there, and I thought, I wonder what I'd like to be a pastor. Huh, what an interesting... Job. What do you do? You prepare and study and you speak and you talk to people and <clears throat> uh, this building has to be taken care of and there are lots of programs. And, <clears throat> and every week I went, I was kind of more and more curious. And then about a month into this, I thought, I wonder if God would ever want me to be a pastor. It was just kind of a throwaway question sitting there in church. And my visceral response to that question was, and, and this really was, it was, surely the kingdom of God is not this desperate for leadership. <laughs> Could not make any sense how, how, that would, how that would be possible. But I kept going week after week, and, and it was almost like there was this little uh, dial over on the wall. It was slowly, the dimmer switch was slowly getting brighter, and it was like, I wonder if that's what I'm supposed to do. I wonder what that's supposed to do. I went home for Christmas, and I talked to a pastor I'd met uh, the previous year, I'd been a Christian all of 11 months now, and I told him my story, 
And uh, he said, well, he said a pastor needs to be able to be a good teacher. And he showed me a couple of good verses. And I thought, huh. And for the first time, I thought, I wonder if it's possible that God would really want me to do this. It still just seems so inconceivable. But I went back for my, my spring semester. And as time went on, it just sort of, the, the dimmer switch kept getting brighter. And I was talking to people about that. And some of my Christian friends were saying, well, I could see you doing that. And I was like, you can? Because <laughs> I couldn't. You can? And um, uh, my pastor gave me a couple opportunities to speak uh, at a Wednesday night little prayer service. Although, uh, I don't want to overstate this because, uh, uh, would you hand me that corner paperback book and, and just run it up here real quick? Just, just the real thin one there. Yeah, right in front of you. There's good. Yeah. This one right there on the corner. Yeah. Paperback book. A book. That's it. Bring that on up here. <laughs> so, so I spoke on Wednesday night. And there were probably 30 people at this, at this thing. And, and on Sunday, I went back. And I was attending a church of about 2,000 attenders at, you know, during that time. And... The pastor made a point to find me sometime between services at this huge church to give me a book. Hey, Seth, I wanted to give this to you. And it was a, it was a paperback book, a little bit thinner than this. It was something like Introduction to Christian Theology. <laughs> Apparently, that was, there was a crying need for that after hearing my first sermon. But I'm thinking, well, I, I think I'm supposed to do this. And the church there, they, they did what they call licensed me to the gospel ministry. And I thought, wow, this is, this is happening. And, but, but, I, but I had in my back pocket my out. And that was, I was going to write a letter, my application to Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth. And they were going to ask all about my story. And I was sure that when the folks read my application... There would be people in the admissions office going, hey, Harry, you got to read this guy's story. He wants to come to the seminary. I was sure that was what's going to happen. There was no chance they were going to take somebody like me. By this time, I'd been a Christian about 16 months. So I'm home for, uh, at the end of the semester, um, uh, and I'm getting ready to take a few more summer classes to finish my history degree. And I got a letter from Southwestern Seminary. My mother was home. And I said, hey, Mom. I said, I got the letter. And, and I opened it up. And I was, I was just 100% sure it was going to be something like, thank you, Mr. Gatchel, for applying to the seminary. But it's the belief that you need some more seasoning or some, or some more experience or something like that. And I would have completely understood that. And so my mom's looking at me as I'm reading the letter. And I look at the letter. I said, Mother, they took me. They took me. Do they know what they took? Did anybody read my application? But it was kind of like my last little, I guess I'm going. Here we go. And off to the seminary. Uh, as a 19-month-old Christian, his favorite page was still 
the table of contents. <laughs> a lot of you all know Harold, Harold Bullock. Uh, thankfully and providentially, if I ever wonder if God is sovereign, all I have to do is think of this story. God put the two of us in two classes our first semester at the seminary. In one class, I sat at the front uh, of the class. It was church evangelism. I was just trying to figure out personal evangelism. I could not imagine how do you lead a church to do evangelism. And so I am that annoying guy on the front row that about every five minutes was going, hey, prof, wait a second. How do you do that? Or could you explain that again? And, you know, everybody else, I'm sure, in the class was going, you know, who is this guy? And Harold, of course, we had not met yet, but his first impression of me from the back of the class was, now there's a fellow that's not ashamed of his ignorance. <laughs> I guess that was quite apparent. The other class is Old Testament. He sat on the front row, we still had not met, and we had class discussion. About every five minutes, the prof would go. He would, he would teach for about five minutes. He'd throw out a discussion question. There were about 60 of us in the room. One guy would say, I, I think this. Another guy, I think this. I think this. Then you see this. Harold's a big guy. You see his paw go up from, from the back. what it looked like. And his very deep voice. Now, he's only 28 years old, but he had that deep voice then. And he quotes some obscure verse from the Old Testament. Well, in the book of Numbers, and you quote the verse, and we'd all kind of go, yeah, that, that's the answer to the question. And, and this went on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and it went on the next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And after a couple weeks, you're thinking, who is that guy? And how did he get to know the Bible like that? I, it seemed to me that he knew the Old Testament better than our Old Testament professor did. That was just, just my impression. Now, if you... Hopefully, as you just hear this in me, what you hear is something of the fellow we're going to study tonight, and that's Gideon. I resonate with Gideon. Uh, and and what I, the identity that I want to talk about tonight is what I think of as the protected life. The protected life. Now, this covers a whole bunch of problems that we typically think about and we deal with. Uh, it deals with being passive. It covers being lazy. It covers uh, fear and weakness uh, and some anxiety uh, and, and uh, being timid. The fear of failure or the fear of rejection can come under this. That, if, that all of these things are things that would, in a sense, rock my world or, or rob me of, of what I'm describing as life. And so the objective of life here, the identity, is as I live my life, is to make sure that I protect myself from these calamities by the way I relate to the people around me and by my response to projects or ministry opportunities. Something like Gideon. Now, another reason I uh, identify with Gideon is because not only is that an identity that he started off with, this protected identity, but also the way God dealt with him uh, is not how I would have dealt with him, certainly. In fact, it's about the opposite of what I would have done. But I also resonate with what God did with Gideon. He's done with me over these many years uh, in making me a, a different person of root, trying to root out 
to, to almost like get God's, if he had tentacles, like, like from an, a, the talons of an eagle, to, to reach into my soul and to grab this protected life persona and just slowly to shred it out of my life. And I have fought him on this tooth and toenail for a long, long time. And still do today, all these many years later. Now, the, um, as we start here, there are a couple, um, a couple slides that I want us to start with. Uh, what do we have up here? Yeah, let's go to the next one. Uh, so the cycle of sin in the book of Judges, uh, the book of Judges is a real downer book. It's probably the lowest moment in Old Testament history other than when the nation was wiped off the face of the earth. But the cycle of disobedience and then distress, like, uh, sort of like Hosea, uh, the story of Hosea and Gomer, we saw today, I will wall her in, God brought distress. The cry of the people is, do something, the call of to God, do something, and God brings a deliverer. That's the general cycle. It happens over and over and over again. But the people never really repent. When they call for help, they don't call for repentance. They call for deliverance. Very, very different. Now, let's go to the next slide. Uh, their top priority in life, the good life. This is the book of Judges. This is what they're trying to do from start to finish. Uh, and, and like who said uh, it's not all that different from today. Uh, and this weekend, what I'm trying to give to you is something of why do, how do people try to get the good life, the managed life, we look at Solomon, the blessed life, we look at uh, Gomer, uh, where, and the idea there is that we're not going to get all of what we hope for, but we'll settle at least for one good one. A good marriage, good kids, a good career, something we like doing. That will bring me life. That will satisfy my soul. We saw that. Um, and and uh, this one tonight we're going to look at uh, is not on, on the screen, but it's the protected life. It's I'm not sure I'm really going to get what it is that I really want, but at least I don't want that much damage coming my way. The mo in the morning we're going to look at uh, another character, the wounded life, uh, that we'll do for these, uh, these four messages. Okay, so... We'll start in Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, not Winfrey, that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, this is our opening picture of Gideon. Uh, we have the advantage of also having the rest of chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. So... We can read, take what we know of Gideon in the rest of the story and read back into the very beginning of what we see in the story here. Gideon is a man who is gripped by fear. He is timid. His identity is one of weakness. What can I possibly do? Don't ask me to do very much. I'm afraid I'm going to fail. I'm going to disappoint you. Is how, is how he is sort of timid and feckless. Our first picture is he's threshing wheat in a wine press um, and you sort of have this picture of him sort of cowering so that the Midianites who are across the room on the other side don't see him. He's, he's hiding out. Now, verse 12 is one of those verses where you just say, what? The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. The angel of the Lord says this, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I'm thinking, we need to take this, we need to take this angel of the Lord to the ophthalmologist and get him a new pair of glasses. 
Because that's not the Gideon I know or the Gideon we read about in chapter 6 and the beginnings of chapter 7. Now, what strikes me here as we're thinking about identity is that Gideon is, in, is encased, in, uh, ensconced in, in a particular fearful protection identity. And the angel of the Lord presents him an identity that's the polar opposite of this. In a sense, knowing the story, Gideon, although he didn't know it at the time, really has an option here. Do I have to stay in this protected life motif? Is it possible that I could be a mighty warrior? Like what the angel's saying, but, but like I've said, our, usually our identity is not changed just by uh, a truth, which is certainly illustrated here. Verse 13, notice how Gideon responds. He doesn't respond, wow, all my life I've been waiting for somebody to believe in me and think I have it, and okay, I'm in. What are we going to do? That's not Gideon. Verse 13. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? <clears throat> when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? <clears throat> but now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. I, it, it's hard to imagine there would have been a more unlikely person to pick. Here you have uh, Gideon as a doubter of little faith, as a cynic, as a questioner. Uh, you know, you, you may think that I'm going to be a mighty warrior here, but uh, this whole plan of God thing, you, you've got to be kidding. God has abandoned us, not we have abandoned him, is how he looks at things. Verse 14, the angel, the Lord, turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have. Uh, I like how the angel did not respond to his sulking and his pouting and his woe is me. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Again, the angel of the Lord, from the angel of the Lord's uh, point of view, there's not a reason why he can't pick up what he's supposed to do and get after it. But that's a hard sell to Gideon. As again, we'll see by his response in verse 15. But Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my family. You hear him living out of his identity. How he sees himself. And as we said the other night, how he wants to see himself at a different level. It protects him from failure. Fear, failure, feckless. This is Gideon. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and will strike down all the Midianites together. Uh, the angel of the Lord is, is not uh, persuaded otherwise by all of Gideon's excuses. And uh, so Gideon realized that he's, he's sort of, the angel of the Lord's there and he's got to do something. And so he decides he's going to, to make this meal and give an offering uh, to the Lord. And the angel of the Lord takes the staff and fires it up. And, and the fire comes and, and Gideon is uh, impressed with this. And he, and he, he realizes that the, the God of peace has visited me. Uh, and here, what I think of is that uh, God in his goodness to him puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. He, he, he says, we're here. We're going to walk with you through this. 
He gives them a miracle just to, just to make it so there's, there's no mistake here. About as easy as, okay, okay, I got it, we're in. Uh, it's, it's sort of like just God, God is, just condescends to his utter weakness just to help the boy get started. I relate to this. Now, I think about, now, if I was, if I was God, and here was my raw material of Gideon, and, I, and he was going to lead an army, what would I do to help this poor, fearful, timid fellow get started? And my thought was, I'd want to give him a few good wins. So let's give him a few little projects that he can do, and, and maybe he can get a little success and some momentum going, and maybe in 5 or 10 or 15 years, he might be able to do something. Well, let's, have him, let's have him be a greeter at Challenge. Now get him smile when they come in. And shake their hand. Tell them you're glad they're here. And at the end of the time, you meet with them. And how did it go? Well, I smiled. And they, oh, Gideon, that's so wonderful. We're so proud of you. And maybe his hopes would rise that maybe he could do something. Well, that's not what God does with him. Um, when we were starting Hope Church uh, back in Fort Worth, uh, Ralph Neighbor was our uh, worship leader, and he was good. He's, he's a decent guitar player, decent voice. He had a really good presence about worship. He loved worship. He's really good at leading us in worship. And uh, Ralph let us know after a while that he was moving to the University of Oklahoma. He's going to be involved in student ministry there. And I looked around at the folks in our church at Hope, there were about 40 of us at the time. And I remember I went to Harold and said, Harold, what are we going to do for a worship leader? I could not think of anybody that could do this. And Harold paused, and I knew that was trouble. Well, brother, I was actually thinking about you. And again, Harold, we can't be that desperate for a worship leader. <laughs> but apparently we were. I had, I had my little $100 guitar way back when, which was nothing, and nobody in my life had ever accused me of being a singer. Um, but it was time to get it. Now, now, there were only 40 people in the room. But I remember, and all we had was a piano player. We had two piano players, and they rotated. Thankfully, they were excellent piano players, and they both had amazing voices. Uh, and I was the other part of the worship team, uh, me and my... Uh, cheap guitar and my voice uh, as it was. And about 15 minutes before we were having worship, every Sunday I would go to the men's restroom and sit in the stall, not because I had business to do in there, but because I was terrified. Oh God, please help me. I am so afraid. I hate this. I don't want to be afraid. Can't you take this? Can't you do something about this? And that went on every week. Second week, third week, fourth week, sixth week, seventh week, eighth week. I made absolutely no progress in this. I relate to what God does here with, with uh, Gideon. He didn't give him a small little project. He, he gave him something that, that was way over his head. In uh, Judges 6, that same night... The Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Now, remember, the people of Israel were in trouble because of their disobedience to God. 
their stubborn refusal to turn to him, and their, their worship of foreign gods, including the Baals and the Asherahs. And so this is in real time. And remember, the problem, the reason why they were in such distress was God was walling them in, trying to disrupt their lives that, that it might bring repentance. And so, and so it strikes me in this little episode that God is really after two things. He wants to tell the people that before the, the, the win comes, the victory comes, you need to know that it wasn't because of the great military might. But there was some business done in the hearts of the people about who God is. The second thing that strikes me is Gideon knew that if he did that under the cover of sunlight, that the townspeople would kill him. And so Gideon obeys God, but he does it under the cover of darkness. And when, uh, when he gets the deed done, the, the, the uh, altar is, uh, the Baal altar is destroyed. He makes a new altar. He takes his father's bull and, and puts it at the top of the hill where the, all the altars were in those days. And the people wake up the next day. They are livid. And they, and they try to, who was this? They figure out, somebody says it was Gideon. And they go to Gideon's father. Uh, Gideon is nowhere to be found. You go to Gideon's father, and, and uh, Gideon's father uh, sort, of, sort of bails him out, kind of gets, gets the thing off. Um, and then the next thing that happens in the story is that the Spirit of the Lord comes down upon Gideon, and he blows the trumpet. And sort of what's inferred here, I think, is Gideon would never have picked up the trumpet to blow, to rally the people to come for an army. It took the Spirit of God to do that. And so he does that uh, for the summons to come. Uh, and as the men are coming to assemble an army, the sense is that I get in the text or in the story is that now he's realizing uh, there's going to be a, a big battle. We are going to war. Uh, this has become a lot more real. It wasn't just, you know, hand out a few programs that challenge next week and, and think about leading the Bible study next semester. Kill the bull, put him at the top, tear down the, the Asherah pole, and get the army ready to go. This all happens within the first 48 hours. He does the famous fleece thing. Oh, Lord, would you show me? And he does, you know, the fleece is wet, the fleece is dry, you know. And, and again, here at the point while God is at some times giving him great challenges way overhead his head, at the same time, he also condescends, puts the cookies on the very bottom shelf. Makes it very apparent to Gideon where he is, keep going. And you see this pattern back and forth where God comes to him in his weakness and condescends to him to help him get move forward, and then gives him some challenge that's way over his head and just says, go, get involved in this. So we come to chapter 7, um, at the beginning of the army. Early in the morning, verse 1, uh, Gideon and all his men encamped at the spring of Herod. The camp of, Gid of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Gideon, we have a problem. Your army's too big. Now, if you're Gideon and you're already dealing with fear and you hear that problem, I would be saying to God, you know, God, your math and my math aren't the same. You have that new math thing that you're doing here? 
Because if I see a problem here, it's we don't have enough men. Not too many. In order that Israel may not boast against me, God says, that her own strength has saved her. <coughs> so he says to getting announced now to the people. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Now, I've always thought it's interesting that, Gil that Gideon didn't leave. Uh, it wasn't because he wasn't trembling with fear. I got a feeling he was trembling with fear. But um, at least he was so far into the game that he didn't. And so, uh, verse 4, the Lord said, to, and so 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Now, they're going to go up against an army of 120,000. They had 32,000. They're still going to be outnumbered almost four to one. 22,000 go home. Now they got 10,000. Now they're outnumbered 12 to one. Would God give me a bigger challenge than I think I can do and then withdraw significant resources from me? Huh, that sounds familiar. I think that's happened to me a few times in my life. Why? Why? He's trying to shape. He's trying to reach in with his talons and grab this, this thing that's in, identity that's ensconced in here, fear, and shred it and, and rip it out from me. Verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water. And before, God said to Gideon, you tell the ones that are fearful. This time, he says, I'm going to sift them. <laughs> I will sift them there for you. If I say this one shall go, he shall go. But if I say this one will not, shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with the tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Out of the 10,000, 300 lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will now save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. He's got 10,000 soldiers there. And God says, 9,700 of them, you need to send back home. A greater challenge and fewer resources. That makes no sense to me. But apparently it makes great sense to God if he's trying to change who I am. Hmm. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents. Well, I wonder what it was like to do that. Uh, guys, um, there's a whole bunch of you that can go home. Although if you want to hang out, maybe there'll be a second curtain call. He sent the rest of them to their tent, kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below them in the valley. Now, a few years ago, Mindy and I went to Israel, and we stood at the top of the hill where the story plays out. And you could imagine, as you're standing there, looking down the hill into the, into the wide valley below, 120,000 soldiers camped at night, sleeping. And up on the top of the hill, Gideon, who's about to go with a, with a, a fella here to go on this little uh, um, scouting expedition, uh, goes up at night and looks down over this sea of humanity of Midianites. We pick up the story 
uh, verse 8. Now the camp of Midian lay below in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. Remember, this is at nighttime. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp. And here God, again, strikes me as, even though he gives him this humongous challenge, he condescends down to Gideon's level to help him keep moving forward. If you are afraid to attack, of course he is. Go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. Again, this is in the darkness. All these guys are sleeping. The Midianites and Amalekites and all the other eastern people had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. Now I have a picture here of a little campfire. And there are these two guys who are on the very edge of the camp, maybe just coming up the side of the hill, and Gideon and his, and his buddy are crawling through the brush, and he, and he sees the glow of the campfire, and he hears two men talking. These are just, just random two out of 120,000. Listen to the conversation. Right, they arrived just as a man was telling his friend his dream. I had a dream. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. That was the dream. Now, he had no idea what that dream meant. But the second guy, his friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. How would you like to have been Gideon at that moment? Again, God condescends down to the very lowest level to help move him forward, puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. Something's happening to his identity. It's cracking. And it's slowly forming over on this side of the stage. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out to his 300 men, Get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Does it sound like the Gideon we met in chapter 6? Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. Again, it's not the, the, the fellow we meet in, in uh, chapter 6. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. And when I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So there they are in the darkness. Uh, the scriptures tell us that the, the next watch, the changing of the guard, had happened. So it's probably three in the morning, uh, the changing of the guard, a few new guards in. And there are, if you are the Midianite camp, there are 100 soldiers spread out across the face of the army. And 100 soldiers going down that way, and 100 soldiers going down this way, while all these 120,000 are sleeping. And suddenly, the speaker remembered his props. <laughs> suddenly, they all blow the trumpet. 
That's the best I could do. <laughs> they took out the jar and broke it. Now, I'm not going to do this because this jar is important to my wife. <laughs> so, <laughs> would you come and... Well, I'll just leave it. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it out of harm's way here. They broke the jar and pulled out the flaming torches. And I thought about doing this in this room, but I, didn't, I thought I'd, I'd get us all kicked out of Forest Home permanently if I did that. And they shout out, imagine this, it's pitch black, except for maybe a couple things. And you hear the sound of 300. Some of you are from San Diego. You know how loud that train gets? One train horn? Imagine a 300 trumpets sounding in total darkness. These guys must have jumped up out of their, out of their, their, their blankets and go, what in the fat? And suddenly you hear this crashing, 300 crashes. And then suddenly these lights just pop up in utter darkness. They were terrified. And the scripture said that they all grabbed their swords and began fighting each other in the pitch blackness. A route starts. It starts at 3 a.m. After, after the, uh, the guys are uh, finishing some of the battle, the dawn is coming, and they take off for the hills. It's about 30 miles to the river. And uh, however many 10,000s of these guys are left, they are fleeing, terrified. And Gideon's 300 men are chasing them. Uh, I don't know how, how far you can run in 30 miles. I did a marathon about 10 years ago. I was pretty pooped after about 20 miles. These guys went about 30 uh, in the pursuit of them, and they had been up all night. They were exhausted. We come to chapter 8, and this is such an interesting thing to me. Again, about think about Gideon's identity. Now, the Ephraimites asked Gideon. Now, these are some of the Israelites. They had not responded to the first call to come to the army. But now they all see the great success that Gideon and his men are having. And Gideon runs into one of those things he and I fear like the plague. Criticism. Now the Ephraimites ask Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us? When you went to fight Midian, and they criticized him sharply, but he answered them. Now, for me, I would have just avoided it, because I'm pretty good at avoiding conflict, although I'm getting better at it. Um, or I would have given him a piece of my mind. Uh, but I learned at an early age, nobody really appreciates that. Uh, Listen to what this guy says. What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Beazer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment subsided against him. Now, apparently what happened was when the rout happened, two of the Midianite leaders, as they were fleeing, <coughs> fled in the direction of Ephraim, and as they were coming, the Ephraimites saw, oh, hey, it's the bad guys, and they grabbed them. And very, a very gracious Gideon says, look what you guys did. That was probably much more gracious than I would have been. 
Verse 4, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, a little town there, Give my troops some bread. Remember, these guys have been up all night, hadn't eaten since dinner. They are worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? I mean, I don't want to take my sword. And... Are you ready to meet your maker? How about now? Um, he responds, uh, verse 8, or let me, he replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zamuna into, into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Chad, you guys have really missed it here. You've missed a great opportunity. And we'll be back. And you're going to regret the decision you made. Verse 8, from there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, another town, for bread. And they answered, as the men of Succoth had. Oh, I think, why, why does, what is God doing here? He's doing with Gideon what it seems like he's done with me all these many years. Uh, when they finally get down to, uh, they finally capture Zeba and Zalmunna. And, and one of the verses in the story that gives me the most hope is how the story comes to the battle's end. Verse 18. They asked Zeba, now that they've captured these two kings, they asked Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Meaning some of the Israelite soldiers. What kind of men were they? Men like you, they answered. Each one with the bearing of a prince. Something happened to Gideon between the beginning of chapter 6 and the end of this story. Now, I want to finish with uh, some takeaways um, <clears throat> and try to weave something of how I've seen God work in my life because I am Gideon Jr., and where I resonate with his story, and just draw some observations. If you're, I'll just give you a warning. I know some of you are note takers. There is not going to be enough room on that page uh, if you want to try to get all this stuff down. Um, ten observations from Gideon's story. Uh, I identify with him in terms of self-protective and my identity. My tendency, my, my tendency is to sort of withdraw myself too early from things, to think about the, me and my, me and my marriage, me and my kids, me and my career. Um, but but to, the protection thing, to protect me, uh, the passive, the little faith, uh, the, the fear of failure, the failure of, uh, fear of looking bad. Uh, no, I don't want anybody to blame me. I, I identify with this, with Gideon. Number two, uh, which is so striking to me, is that the angel of the Lord gave him a choice of identity right at the beginning of this story. And it makes me wonder, could, in theory, Gideon have said, is that really possible? I could really be a mighty warrior starting today? Huh. As opposed to, 
just kind of writing that off and saying, oh, there's no chance of that in me. And you hear this in my story, as I told you at the beginning of, of tonight's message. Uh, I, uh, the third thing that strikes me is the call of God to, to Gideon over and over again was move. Move towards relationships and move toward responsibilities. Move towards relationships and move toward responsibilities. Again and again and again, he keeps kicking him in the behind, moving him in that direction. Fourth, Gideon is called again and again, and I relate to this, to enter into the confusion of life. There are many times in life where it's very confusing, and I just don't know what to do. And I wish I didn't have to deal with something. I wish I didn't have to make a decision. But there are times you have to. You have to make a decision. You have to do something. You have to pick up the phone and call. You have to have that difficult conversation. The call is to move into the confusion even when you don't know what to do. You just be, you just take yourself and be present. Trusting that God is going to use the present you in the life of the person you're talking to. Number five, move with courage and strength though you feel neither. I don't, have to, I don't have to act with confidence. I don't have to feel confident to act with confidence. And I don't have to feel strong to act with strength. Number six, ever-increasing challenges, ever-decreasing resources. Typically, when that happens for a self-protective identity like mine, oh, God, what's wrong? Nothing. I'm shaping you. Number seven. Be confident in God's goodness in spite of your circumstances. The measure of God's goodness is not my circumstances. Number eight. I count 16 challenges that Gideon had to face to decide or act in this story. Sixteen. None of them were very easy. Huh. God, has that happened to me? Yippers. Number nine. The very things he feared the most, God made him face. And here's the list of things that struck me. The fear of failure. The fear of rejection. The fear of looking bad. The fear of leading. And the fear of criticism. Faced them all. If I had been working in Gideon's life to try to break, I, I, I would have tried to protect him from all those things. Get him a little stronger first. Then maybe wean him into this a little bit, a little bit at a time. That's not what God did. Huh, God, do you, do you do that with me? Am I having to face these kinds of things? Yippers. Number 10. God's ways with Gideon generally fell into two categories. I've mentioned these. Uh, in one hand, he puts the cookies on the bottom shelf occasionally to make it as easy as possible. Uh, the obvious fire at the, at the beginning of the offering. Um, some very visual things like the fleece. Uh, some very specific answered prayer signs and a very specific dream down to detail. But while he was condescending to the to, to very lowest denominator to help Gideon, the other thing he was doing was giving him challenges that were way over his head. Uh, is, God, is that, how you, is that what you've done with me? 
That's certainly how it seems to me. Tough challenges, less troops, overwhelming odds, unjust criticism, exhaustion, the possibility of losing his life and killing kings. Let's pray together. Father, would you take the story that we've just read and where you want any of us to identify with the story to say, I am Gideon. Well, he's part of me. And then may we see with clearer eyes how you dealt with him and how you thought it was a good way to deal with him. But it seems to me, I don't particularly think it's a good way that you should deal with me. I don't like it when, when I'm exposed. I don't like it when I'm criticized. Or sometimes justly and sometimes unjustly. I don't like it when I'm afraid. I don't like it when things aren't going well. I don't like it when it, it, it can be perceived that I'm just not doing that well and maybe we're failing. I just hate all that stuff. And yet it seems like you just keep exposing that and, and causing me to face these things. And in the midst of this, you call me from one side of the stage to the other. You are slowly shaking this old identity of self-protection. And you are bringing cracks to the statue that still sits in my heart. And you are trying to make me a person who's rooted more deeply in you and in your goodness and trust you enough to pick up the phone and trust you enough to, to have a conversation and to ask a, a spiritual opening question with a lost person or invite somebody to a Bible study or to church or the courage to make a hard decision or the courage to humble myself to get some, some uh, feedback from some other people. Father, we pray that uh, you would give us fresh eyes to see uh, what it is that you're doing uh, in our life to, uh, to shake us uh, and to remake us into your people.